Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this week's show, we're thrilled to be joined by Megan Reynolds, partner and head of capital formation at Altimeter Capital. Founded by Brad Gerstner in 2008, the firm has backed companies such as Snowflake, Unity, Gusto, and Modern Treasury. Prior to joining Altimeter, Megan worked in a variety of investor relations roles, including at TPG, Goldman Sachs, and Jazz Venture Partners. She's also quite prolific on Twitter with her insights on the LP world, and this conversation was a lot of fun as she went through the system she uses to form and maintain relationships with world-class LPs. We hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan, and let's get right into the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Juniper Square. Venture capital firms and their investors have realized that a fund administrator without best-in-class technology is no longer acceptable. At the same time, experienced fund managers also know that a reliable and responsive fund accountant is critical to ensure fund activities are done in a timely and completely accurate way. It's time you talk with Juniper Square, a fund admin built for sophisticated venture capital firms by pairing world-class support with leading technology. Request a call at junipersquare.com. That's J-U-N-I-P-E-R-S-Q-U-A-R-E.com. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Megan, it's so great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Samir, I'm so happy to be here. I feel like this is meant to be you and I chatting about this stuff. I I think so too. And, you know, you are one of the most active people when it comes to LP Twitter. And that's something that obviously is near and dear to my heart, given how many LPs I talk to. But there's going to be so much to unpack in terms of what we're both seeing. But maybe a good place to start is you've been with Altimeter now for almost two years. And before that, you had a variety of roles, different firms, you know, in the capital formation world. But maybe we just start with your history and what led you up to Altimeter? Sadly, I have a long history, which is giving a <laughs> some indication of how old I am. But, you know, I've essentially had three chapters of my career, um, which goes back to early 2000s when just by a stroke of luck, I landed at Goldman Sachs in their private equity group right out of school and into a capital formation role at really what was kind of the advent of the asset class. Private equity had been around a long time, but it was really at the point when private equity and venture capital and alternative investments were starting to grow from a very small cottage industry to a real institutional asset class. So when I joined Goldman there in their private equity group, they were managing about $10 billion of assets. When I left 10 years later, they were managing about $40 billion of assets. And this was through a series of fund of funds and secondary funds and direct funds. And that was mainly through both institutional and high net worth growth. So had a great start to my career there. And then um, I left Goldman and joined TPG, time in the market that was post-global financial crisis, post-mega buyout boom. But when the buyout part of the market and the large end of private equity was really expanding into multi-product firms and public alternative firms, and I was really lucky to spend another decade learning many things about being at that, that part of the market and what it meant to service investors both coming out of a crisis and raising capital in a multi-product format. And so 10 years at TPG, watched them grow from 40 billion when I joined to over 100 billion when I left. And when I left, I was co-leading fundraising for the firm globally. And I was really ready for a third chapter in my career. I love the build and grow, as you can imagine, given what the first two chapters look like. And I feel really excited to be a part of Altimeter when venture capital, the venture capital part of the industry is really going through its own transitions and institutionalizations. And we, we can unpack that, but exciting to be at Altimeter for people that don't know Altimeter. It's a, 
life cycle technology investment firm that invests from the earliest parts of a company's journey and venture all the way through to public markets, technology focused and, uh, and a fabulous LP base that I get to work with every day. It's a great history. And there's something that I wanted to come back to, which is this concept of capital formation. Oftentimes, when you think about fundraising, you're thinking about it into the context of investor relations, you know, working with LPs, working on the fundraise. But I think capital formation is a more nuanced term that probably has several dimensions to it. Maybe we can talk about what does capital formation mean from your perspective? Happy to chat through that. And it's funny. I think that the role is called many different things and the industry across the board could use some consistency in what we call this role. I mean, some people call it fundraising. Some people call it investor relations. I think capital formation encapsulates all that's involved and doesn't just, I think those other terms have a tendency to capture a portion of the role, but not a complete definition of what's involved in servicing and raising capital for servicing investors and raising capital for an alternative investment firm or private markets firm. So I think that, you know, there's, there's different components. One, as you said, is investor relations. So I think, you know, what, and I think this is what people have a tendency to think about when they think about an investor related role in a firm. So traditional IR would be the servicing of your existing investors from an administrative standpoint, from updating addresses to sending out capital calls to doing your quarterly reporting to answering, you know, day-to-day Q&A around what's happening, what's happening with the fund that I'm invested in. And I would say this is something that from a, just like a pure legal standpoint, you have to accomplish certain things when you are a fund manager. You have to send the reports and send the capital calls. And there's a certain amount of administration that's just related to that. And it's it's extremely important, but um, you know, it's certainly only a portion of the role. And then I think there's also a part of capital formation that what I call product management. Other firms call it project management, but this is I define this as looking at the portfolio that you're running, thinking about the fund that you're managing from the lens of what your investors expect from you and need from you. So how does your, you're working with the investment team, working with the the portfolio manager, general partners to say, how do our investors think about the actions that we're taking and are we delivering on what was marketed and promised to them in the management of our portfolio. And I think about this in terms of when is the right time to distribute capital? Are we communicating proactively about not just, you know, our annual reporting, but are we communicating proactively about what's happening day to day? Part of what they need from us is information. It's insights. It's beyond just an annual report. I think about this around fundraising strategy and timing, right? How do we strategically plan when we're coming back to market with a new fund, you know, running, what capital do we need for a product and when? So a little bit is, is push out, like what do we need from our investors? And some of it is pull of what do investors need from us? There's a third component around like relationship and brand management that I think is more traditional sales, but like how do we maintain relationships with both our current and prospective LPs? What channels and resources are we leveraging to build new relationships in the market and connect with existing investors? There's a lot there. And the, the things that I think are pretty obvious to most people that are fundraising and, and This could be somebody that is a professional that's working at a firm that is in the IR position, or it could be a smaller firm where the GP is both investing and also managing those LP relationships. And the things that people typically think about is, okay, when I'm fundraising for a particular fund, there's a number of things that need to happen. I need to fill up the funnel. I need to work people through the funnel. There's materials that I need to put together after they invest. There's those quarterly reports. There's this inquiries that come up. It's the AGM. But you mentioned something during that part of what you're describing, which is around how do you work with the investment team to 
eat more strategic in nature. You mentioned distributions, the DPI. You're listening to your clients, which are these LPs or your shareholders, which are the LPs, and understanding and empathizing on what they're going through. And ultimately, you're working in concert with the investment team. So all of it is very holistic when you make decisions. What does that look like and how you interact with the investment team to ensure that, number one, the investment team is doing what they're best at, but at the same time, it aligns and corresponds to the LP or shareholder side of the table? It's an everyday component of the business. It really is. And one would think that it would be very straightforward, right? Like we marketed a fund and we're going to invest the fund. And do we really need to be understanding the LP mindset as we move forward? But it it really is dynamic. And it looks it looks like a lot of different things. It looks like sitting in an investment committee meeting and we're discussing an investment that may be sensitive for a certain com- like component of LPs. Because, and I'm, I'm making up a hypothetical situation here, but it may tap on something that's ESG related where we have ESG sensitive investors, or it might be, look it for us, like it might be something that's maybe out of stage from where we typically participate. And it's like, okay, this is a really attractive investment, but to LPs, this might look like strategy drift. So how do we, it's not that we shouldn't do the investment. It's not that the LPs are determining how we go about day to day and that we're oversensitive, but maybe we need to communicate why this extra, like have extra communication on why this is relevant, or maybe we should be sensitive to how this might be perceived by our LPs. Sometimes it looks around the timing of an investment because, you know, this has been an interesting market because LPs are liquidity constrained and if going out and doing a big deal and having to make a big capital call at a time that it's, you know, where the public markets are way down. Again, it's not, it doesn't mean you're not going to do it, but having a sense of how LPs will respond and what position that they'll be in if you do do it. And on the flip side, maybe distributing capital at a time where liquidity is needed when you have level level levers to pull in that regard is important. And I love that you use the word empathy. I think that's really the component that's most important here. It's like as general partners, you have a ton of empathy. I see it in venture. Everyone has empathy, founder empathy. Like they really relate to founders and they really think about how is how our founder is going to feel. And I think the same level of empathy needs to just be turned on our LPs, right? How are they, what's going on in the LPs mindset? What do they need from us? How would they feel? when, you know, certain actions are being taken by the buyer firm. You're describing a lot of things that refer to really knowing the LP, their incentives, who they are as people, what their individual situations are. And of course, as you have more LPs, there's more to track and you really have to determine exactly, you know, whether an LP is a good fit for your fund. How do you work with them over a period of time? I still see a lot of managers when they think about the LP component is, how do I get them to invest in my fund? And then I'm going to hopefully perform so they go into the next fund and the next fund and the next fund. There's much more to that. And especially at the front end of fundraising, tell us a little bit about how you go about when you are meeting a, an LP for the first time. Instead of just pitching what Altimeter is, for example, what are the things that are necessary to build the right sort of frameworks and foundation with LPs? who may ultimately become long-term partners. What are the things that you do in that first meeting? I think the most important part of a pitch is listening, personally. I, I think that every meeting with a potential partner, and I use that word partner, right? Because that's what you are. You're going on a 10-year journey together. And probably more, right? Probably, probably more. Very few of these journeys actually end up in 10 years. And hopefully it's a 30 and 40-year journey as involves multiple funds, right? I would say, so understanding an LP's program, where you fit, what's important to them, what what makes for a good partnership, like what defines a successful venture capital partnership for them is really helpful. One, it helps you adjust your pitch. So you're focusing on the things that are most important and relevant. 
But I think it also helps you understand, is this a good fit for me as a general partner, right? If someone, you know, if you find out in that conversation that you're working with an LP who, whose program is really IRR focused and you're, you have, you know, you're focused on MOM and maybe long dated capital and you're unlikely to, you know, that where you're not going to see, you may have a deep J curve in your portfolio because of the style of investing. It's really important to establish that fit up front because frankly, it will save everyone's time or maybe avoid frustration down the line. At Altimeter, we love to think about partnerships that are not just focused on the opportunity set right in front of us today, but look to have a multi-fund journey that have a deep understanding of the style of our investing that is it, that is patient in nature, that is going to understand there will be ups and downs of the journey, but that you can build together with great transparency and sharing of insights. And that, and that has to resonate. And so I think, you know, it's going back to that listening mode and there's lots of questions. I think if you don't spend five or 10 minutes of an hour long meeting on at the minimum of understanding an LP's program, you're really missing out. Also an opportunity to just learn more about the market and what the LP mindset is. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And it seems such an obvious thing to do, but oftentimes people just start unloading on what they're doing and why it's going to be the right fit for the LP. And it goes right into sales mode. Sales 101 is know who you're selling to and what product you're actually selling. And the product that you're selling has to conform to what is actually important for the person you're talking to. Most people, most GPs I talk to, when they think about fundraising, and are talking to an LP, they they really hone in on performance. You know, what have I done before? What am I going to do potentially going forward? Here's why we're special. But are there other things that are not obvious that you found that LPs actually do really care about, but they may not vocalize outside of returns? Mm, that's a great question. I think it's especially relevant today where we're coming out of a part of the market where everybody had good returns. And frankly, returns haven't and private markets haven't really fully adjusted yet because they're on a deep lag. So everybody's returns look pretty good. So differentiation beyond returns matters a lot. Team dynamics are really important to LPs. And having an LP understand how decisions get made, like how how organizational design. There's no right or wrong answer, but how a team functions and how you move an opportunity from the top of the funnel all the way through is extremely important. I, I find time and time again, LPs get to the question, what makes, you know, I'll use altimeter because I work there. What makes an altimeter deal an altimeter deal? Like what is, how do you describe the playbook? How does that work with your team? What are the organizational dynamics that bring you to to, to help us understand what is classically you in the market. I think that is incredibly important in, in working through an introductory meeting and frankly, as you go through diligence. Um, and I think, and it all kind of leads you to getting to how, what was really unique and different about you. It's the differentiation piece beyond returns. And, and of course, when you invest in a fund, it, especially in venture, it could take four, five, six, seven years to know actually directionally how good that fund's going to be. And during that time, during a five or six year period, you may have a venture fund raise three funds during that period. So LPs are often forced to make decisions based on limited information at the time they invest on the past fund that they've perhaps allocated to. What does that ongoing relationship dynamic look like? In, in terms of driving things that are post, not just distributions, but helping the LP with other things that they care about, whether it's sometimes it's learning, sometimes it's information, it's network. And it's all outside of like what is legally required for you to do, which is you have to send out the quarterly reports. You have to do K-1s. I have to believe that when you run a shop of your size and scale, there's much more that goes into the ongoing relationship management. Completely. And we're in the business, not of just delivery. Like returns are really just one component. There's, there's other components to it. And 
you can see this time and time again with firms that, you know, frankly have pretty mediocre performance, but continually raise capital and can raise very meaningful capital. So there's got to be some other value add if it's not just, you know, if returns are frankly mediocre. I think a lot of that in the market today looks like insights. You know, what I am learning from you, you are operating in a market that I need, you know, I have, I manage a portfolio within that market and private markets by their nature are harder to digest and analyze than public markets. And so what insights am I gaining from you and your team about what you're seeing on the ground and how is that making me a better investor? It's such an important component to managing the entire portfolio, the insights that you're getting out of private market investments. And so I think that could look like your specific sector expertise. It could look like your macro observations. It could look like geographic observations, but delivering insights is very important to LPs. And that could, you know, that can be delivered in many different forms. I have heard some LPs say they love, they continually invest in a manager because they can't miss out on their annual meeting because the annual meeting is so good. And you would think like, that's that's crazy, right? You'd think you have an investment when you still get invited to the annual meeting, but that shows you how much insights matters to certain investors. For some investors, it's co-investment. Co-investment is, you know, they want direct deal flow. And I think some managers do a very good job at looking at, you know, at delivering direct deal flow. Sometimes it's access to big thinkers. GPs will have incredible thinkers around the table, either because they run the organization or they have access to them or they've brought them in as advisors. And if you are, you know, you're managing a private investment portfolio at a family office or even a pension fund, and you can get access to former treasury secretaries or head of the FDA and get regular insight, like that's incredibly valuable. And so I would think about, you know, as a GP, even if you're small, think about what unique insights you can deliver to your investors that they would otherwise not, not rely on and, or otherwise have access to, because that, that is very special. It's such great insight. And and there was actually somebody I had on my podcast recently, and it's a, it's a smaller manager, sub $50 million. What he was saying is that one of the most valuable things that he is providing his LPs is effectively his newsletter. And the newsletter is very thoughtfully done. It provides a lot of insight into, into trends, what they're seeing from a technology perspective. And he called it a, a very expensive newsletter that somebody is uh, signing up for. At the end of the day, his point was returns are table stakes. You, over time, you're going to have to drive returns. But in the interim periods, you have to augment it with more of an experience for the LP. And it sounds like you would agree with that assessment. Totally. Yeah, I think transparency is another piece of it too, right? Like you can have great returns, but if you're not delivering transparency on where those returns, on how those returns are derived, there's some real missing pieces and it's a missed opportunity. And I think an LP's can be very frustrated by that. So it works both ways too. There's like, there's, you know, opportunities and value that you can provide. And there's also actually frustrations that you can end up delivering and you can destroy value with investors by not communicating transparently or not being thoughtful about your reporting or not being able, because at the end of the day, most LPs have sitting in an allocator role unless you happen to be an LP that is managing your own family wealth. And even then you have, you have constituents, you have family members or, you know, other people in your life. Like most people are managing that portfolio on behalf of someone else who needs information. And I think that all of these things, the insights, the transparency helps those allocators deliver the value that they need to provide. And it's a really important component of a relationship between GP and LP is understanding that they're sitting, they're your advocate and they are, they are sitting between you and and another underlying customer or underlying important constituent base that needs to understand where you're, what you're doing and where you're coming from. 
Transparency is obviously something very important in the GP-LP dynamic, and most LPs would say that in venture, transparency is still a work in progress with a wide range of how different VC firms provide information, disseminate updates, and the like. And we're in a, in a world now that things aren't up and to the right the way they were for most of the last decade. And that level of transparency can be a differentiation as well as just being simply LP-friendly. And we've seen things just over the last few months with Sequoia dropping fees or Founders Fund splitting their fund, you know, essentially in half or cutting it in half. And then other firms like Tiger going from a $12.7 billion fund to publicly announcing they were going to cut the most recent fund, even down from $6.7 billion to $5 billion. Curious from your lens, what are you hearing from LPs in what they're seeing GPs do and are some of the things that I mentioned with founder Sequoia and uh, Tiger actually part of a broader trend line or are these uh, still kind of outliers? This is a natural ebb and flow of a market that is not new, not unusual, and has been seen before in private markets, right? Markets don't always move up and to the right. The deal market doesn't move that way. Returns don't move that way. Fundraising does not move that way. And you need to adjust to the supply-demand dynamics of the industry, and GPs need to do that. And we are in a market where there is constrained capital. And ultimately, the deal the deal market has changed, right? We've, in venture, round sizes have come in. Deal pacing has slowed. The opportunity set is shifting in real time. You know, we've seen massive shifts in subsectors of the market from crypto to AI. And all of that flows through to dynamics. And we've seen public markets move dramatically, which has an impact on private market allocations. So it is only natural that the GPs will have to adjust to those dynamics in the market over time. And that's going to look like fund size, economics, legally agreed upon transparency, LPs demanding limitations on funds for, you know, for that look like various things could be limitations on sectors that you could participate in or an LPAC having more control than it used to. This is, these are all things that we saw happen in the buyout end of the market post global financial crisis when we had a very similar dynamic of capital being deployed very fast, very peaky markets, valuations getting very high, and then dropping off a cliff, the rise of mega funds. And, you know, in, I think in 2009, I was looking at the data recently, global private markets fundraising dropped over 50% from 2008 to 2009. Now we're not in the global financial crisis, but there will be contracted fundraisings that co- people still raise capital, but their funds got smaller and there was a big adjustment and terms changed and you had to react. So I think it's just, I don't think it's a permanent shift in the market. I think this is just natural supply dynamic, you know, markets ebbing and flowing. There's a few things that I wanted to double click on that you just mentioned, and we'll talk about the institutional market and we'll talk about alternatives capital. But before we go there, you mentioned the LPAC, LP Advisory Committee, which a lot of funds do have. But what we found historically is they've been more symbolic than anything else. In other words, leveraging the LPAC, there's nothing different outside of bringing maybe a few agenda topics to the LPAC on a quarterly, semi-annual basis. I've heard you say that there's a deeper relationship you can create with an LPAC to not only drive synergies, but to drive better decision-making as a firm. Maybe you can unpack what that actually means. The LP advisory committee is set at the time that you raise a fund. And it typically is made up of your largest, some of some of your largest or some of your most sophisticated investors. Because legally, if something were to go wrong in the fund or there's a conflict, they have they are given some level of power just like a board would over a company, right? And they are a body that can act as a representative for the broader LP base. But at the end of the day, these are your largest and most sophisticated customers. And 
for you to have an opportunity, those are folks that you should have a very regular dialogue with. And as you think of them as large and sophisticated, they're strategic to your business. They're strategic because their capital is very important to your, your ongoing existence and your ability to grow over time. But they're really strategic because they have they are representative of what's important to your broader, to the broader group of LPs. And so missing and you know, there's an opportunity, it just formalized through an LPAC meeting or, you know, the bringing together of that group, but is is a formalizing of an opportunity to have direct discussion about a variety of topics with your most with your largest and most sophisticated investors. And that can look like not just opining on something that may or may not been, have been a conflict that was uh, related to your limited partnership agreement, but how are we thinking of growing? How are we thinking of building out our organization? What are we thinking about the timing of the next fund? What's your reaction to that? Just like a company would talk about these things with their board. As a GP, this is your board, right? In many ways, it's not exactly governed like this, but this is this is your board. Think about how what you expect from a founder as they speak to their board, um, what you would expect to deliver and what that dialogue would look like. And hopefully that looks like not just conversations during the board meeting, but lots of interim chats and direct dialogue with the key board members. And so I think that that's the really the analogy that I love GPs to really keep in mind and treat it that way, because that is, you know, that's the opportunity at hand. And it it certainly strengthens the bond between those yourself and those LPs and creates this level of transparency where they're part of the firm building exercise versus through limited partner that's passive in nature. A lot of these people that are on the LPAC are sophisticated institutional investors that not only are writing big checks, but I've seen a lot of different managers. I've seen a lot on what's happening in the market and being able to leverage those insights can be quite valuable as you're growing and you're scaling and you're building an organization. Oh my gosh. I mean, they have seen everything. They've seen all the mistakes get made. They've seen things that work, things that don't work on any like any topic. Leveraging the LP insight for the development of your business is something that so few firms do, but is so hugely important and valuable. Because think about it, most, you know, especially if it's a sophisticated institutional LP that has a, a private markets venture capital program that's been around for 10 years or more, they've most likely invested in hundreds of funds, you know, anywhere from 30 to 120 <laughs> general partners and of, of all sorts of stages of their development and evolutions as firms. And so, I mean, think about being able to tap that insight as you develop your own firm. It's pretty, it's pretty darn valuable. So when you think about the institutional market, and we've talked a little bit about the dislocation in the markets, which happened last year, leading up to last year, there was so much liquidity in the system and LPs had more capital then they knew what to do with, right? Their public market securities were going up. Yields on fixed income were very low. There was the risk-free rate was effectively zero. So you there's more capital going to risk on assets. And we saw fund sizes grow 2021, 22, about 150 billion each year was raised in venture. And now a lot of these institutions are in a position with both the drawdowns in the public market in 2022 facing the denominator effect being over allocated to privates, which haven't had mark to market markdowns, as well as other asset classes becoming like private credit, perhaps being more interesting. And so in today's world, you have a lot of firms competing for those same dollars from those US institutions. And what we've seen, and I'd love to get your perspective, is managers look at alternative sources of capital. And there's two in particular that we see. One is Looking at the private wealth sector, Blackstone has famously said that in five years, 50% of their LP base will actually be retail sector, which is now getting bigger and bigger. And then you have international, where a lot of people are going to places like the Middle East, 
Abu Dhabi, Dubai to raise capital from people that are not as allocated to the asset class. What are you seeing in terms of other alternative sources outside of U.S. institutions? We also saw this happen in buyout where it took where sources of capital were very consistent for a very long period of time, largely endowments and foundations and pensions and very, very high net worth, well, you know, ultra high net worth wealth families. And then post GFC, you realized you had investor conference, you had customer concentration. It was hard to raise capital. You needed to be more creative, have more boots on the ground, you know, source more widely. And what happened was there were new sources that were focused on insurance, geographies outside of the U.S., and new channels like high net worth or bank channels, I would say, raising from RIAs and banks very successfully. So, and now as the, a lot, you know, we now have public large alternative asset managers and they talk about the diversity of their LPs, LP base as a way to analyze the strength of their business and where, where the growth is coming from. And a lot of times that's outside of the channels where they grew their business. So I go through that, that the history lesson only to say that this was natural to happen for venture as well. And it sometimes takes a constrained market in where you're comfortably raising capital from your very consistent sources. And now you're forced to go elsewhere. And But that is part of the natural evolution of building a healthy business. Chances are you're LP base was too concentrated within channels to begin with. And building a healthy institution, you should have a diversity of channels, a diversity of LPs, you know, not overly concentrated with a, you know, a single source of capital. I think those sources that you're mentioned, like outside outside of the US, whether whether it's the Middle East, Asia, Europe, they're all growing their allocations. They've historically allocated less to venture. Many people have been investing out of for many, many years, the Middle East investors and in coming to venture capital is not new. Like there have been many, there are many great institutions that are, have that been investing for many, many decades, but they're grow. They have capital at the moment. Like there are many, there are people because of market dynamics, there are people and organizations and institutions that have more capital to deploy aren't as constrained as the U S and Europe is also a place where, we're seeing, you know, continued growth. They've historically allocated less to venture. I think they were more conservative over the last few years in managing allocations because some of the geopolitical things happening in the lead up 2020 and 2021, where they thought there was more currency risk, et cetera. So maybe kind of pulled back early in the crisis. And then, you know, certainly bank channels, family offices, RAs are just you know, you look to the places where people have historically allocated less to the asset class, like that is an opportunity for growth because those groups should be participating in what is today a very standard institutional asset class. And I know that's something really near and dear to your heart. So I don't know that I added to your, the, the, I don't know that that was particularly additive to what you're saying. I don't think there's any magic sources of capital out there, but you do have to be pretty sophisticated in tapping all parts of the market and really understand where you provide strategic value as a GP. There was a report, I think it was by Bain that just came out maybe a week or two ago. And they were actually talking about capital being the private wall sector. And one of the things that they outlined was that of the funds that they had analyzed, only 15% of the capital going into those funds was from non-institutional capital. So most of it, as you would imagine, is pensions, endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth. But yet, you know, if you look at the allocation to private alternatives, the big institutions are barely allocated, 20, 30, 40%. And it's not like a new pension is forming every day, a new you know, foundation. It's a pretty limited universe. Whereas the non-institutional world of private wealth is actually larger in AUM today than the institutional. But the average investment into alts is sub 10%. The challenge for a lot of people is number one, they don't have you or someone like you dedicated to go out and find all these channels. Sometimes it's a GP that's both investing and raising capital. 
going to different geographies is also difficult because each has a different culture, a very different way of decision making. And I was about like when you're raising, you want to find product market fit for your fund, right? So if I'm a $50 million fund, I'm not going to pitch a pension whose minimum check is $50 million. doesn't make sense. But what advice would you give to somebody that is doing everything on their own and how to actually think about the right type of LPs, regardless of these different sources that we've talked about? You know, you mentioned something of like a, a small GP that's doing everything on their own and that they might not have someone like me in their, in their organization. And, you know, I put it back to those GPs a little bit to say, you know, if you were looking at a startup that had developed a product, at what point in the organization would you expect that company to hire someone to focus on business development and sales? My guess is pretty early in the journey, because if you had a product, you got to sell it. I put that to the GPs who have a tendency. I've seen a lot of GPs really hesitate to add talent because they're focused on building out an organization. You don't have a huge P&L when you're small. You've got to focus on growing the investment team. But I'm pretty sure you're not in business until you have the capital. And that happens every, that resets every three to four years. So you really need to think about how you're going to build out the sales part of your business. And sales comes from servicing investors because investors re-up and also from building new relationships. And it's not necessary that you have to do it in-house. There's there's wonderful service providers across the industry that help you outsource that. And I really encourage people that, that were placement agents are in business for a reason. There's advisors, there's, there's important players that help people understand and access different parts of the market. So again, these things cost money, but what better investment than, than in selling, you know, in being able to manage more capital over time. And if not, then you really need to think of yourself as like constantly being in the market and constantly, you know, and it, that is one of the biggest mistakes I think that GPs make is they think that, that once they're done raising, they're done for three years. And I always go back to the Glengarry, Glen Ross, always be closing, like always be fundraising. Do not stop. Absolutely take a couple weeks off and then continue to go. And if you can't do that because you need to invest the fund, then hire someone that's going to help build your brand while you're not in the market. The people that are listening to this can't see me, but I was nodding furiously. <laughs> which thing because I, was, I always tell people you're always raising. Now you're during your time, right? So during a fundraise, it's really intense. And then between raises, maybe you're not spending as much time. But there are a lot of people that say, hey, I just want to get this fundraise over so I can invest. I'm like, well, that's true. But remember, just like a company, an entrepreneur, you're always talking to future sources of the capital that can actually allow you to execute on your business model itself. And you mentioned hiring. You know, At some point, firms get bigger and bigger. They are going to want to bring in an in-house expert that can really lead to capital formation activities. I'm just curious, you've worked in a lot of different shops and you've seen people do this. What is the mark of a exemplary capital formation person? So if I'm a GP looking to hire somebody, what are the must-have characteristics that I should be looking for? There's a lot of different dynamics at play, right? Like how involved is the GP, is the existing partnership want to plan to be in the ongoing marketing of the fund, how much capacity do they have for that? What, where are you in your evolution of your existing, you know, of growth, right? Where you are in hard, where you've got, maybe you have a very supportive and fantastic performance existing LP base and you're not growing your firm. And it's more of servicing the existings versus purely outbound relationship management. Putting that all aside, I think that it's really, you really want a well-rounded individual I think I see a mis- I see mistakes being made where people assume that they want okay we really want to build relationships so we're going to go out and and hire like a classic salesperson that's just like can sell sand in the desert and you know likes to be on the road all the time and is really about relationship building and sometimes 
that might not look like having a skill set where you really know product technically cold and where the LPs find that they, well, this person may be great. I, they feel like they're being sold to and they don't have, they don't feel like they're really getting the insight, the technical insight on the organization or market observations delivered direct to them. And the GPs are then frustrated because they still have to show up at the meeting, even though, you know, they've got the salesperson out there. On the other hand, some, and also you've got, sometimes people hire someone that's administrative monster and can build slide decks like no other, but they're really not, they're really limited as it relates to sales and building new organizations and mapping. So I would say that well-rounded individual that can really do a little bit of everything, like can really drive content, especially if you're not going to hire tons of people. And the, what this looks like at very large organizations is they have sales teams and they have product managers and they have administrative IR, and those are separate functions. But if you're a very small team, I think to start, you want a, someone that it can very comfortably exist in all areas. And if not, recognize that you are going to still need to be involved as a GP in whatever area that might might not be the strong suit of the person that you're hiring. Yeah, it's it's a great advice. And I, I do think it is very firm specific in terms of what you actually need, what the existing team looks like. For example, if you have a GP team that loves to sell and be on the front end, you know, having someone from an administrative standpoint just knocking those things out could be a great fit. I, I wanted to maybe shift for our very last the last question I have is just is this of underwriting to the art of what's possible on a go forward basis, looking at the future seeing trends. Of course, Brad has spoken a lot about super cycles and he mentioned, you know, super cycle with mobile and cloud. And we've seen these technology super cycles exist. Venture went through this massive, both a secular cycle of technology growth through mobile and cloud. Plus we saw the macro economic picture really drive a lot of capital into the market, 150 billion. I mentioned 2021-22. Don't think that's going to be the case this year and probably not next year, maybe it settles in at 80 to 120 billion. But what is your current perspective on the next five, 10 years? Is there an, another super cycle from a technology perspective? And what does that mean for the private markets? Well, we're at Ultimate, we're incredibly excited about the future. It's easy in venture on Sand Hill Road. It, last year, it felt a little doom and gloom, bubbles bursting. And the age of excess ending has a tendency to do that. But you can't spend time in San Francisco and Sand Hill Road without feeling just an incredible amount of excitement and optimism for the super cycles that are developing now. You know, at Altimeter, we spend a lot of time in and around the super cycle of all data moving to the cloud and ultimately machines being able to help humans make better decisions with de that data, which is very relevant to AI and machine learning and everything happening in that space. You know, I'd say there's other super, super cycles happening in electrification and life sciences where we spend less time, but, you know, where other venture firms are focused. Though it's easy to sit in a capital formation seat and say that fundraising is really hard and people are, you know, maybe people aren't allocating as much. The reality is that LPs ultimately know, and I think most investors know at this point, that they need to have, they don't want to miss the boat on super cycles of innovation. It's happening now. It's hard to predict when it will happen in the future. And so you want to be consistently participating in. And the massive scale companies, the power law companies of venture, and when they are founded, are not directly tied to interest rates. You know, they're tied to the brilliance of the innovation that happens in not only Sand Hill Road, but the other places of the world where brilliant people exist. And I love being a part of this asset class for that reason. I am incredibly optimistic that LPs will continue to allocate more and more to venture because they realize that what we have access to as technologists today will help companies scale faster, 
grow for longer. And much of that will happen in a private markets context. And you just don't want to miss out. If you pulled back in 2009 and spent the last 10 10 years on the deck, like on the sidelines, then you missed out on a lot in terms of returns of the best performing asset class for 10 years in a row was venture. You know, we could dive into any one of those super cycles and talk about it in more detail, but I think that's the high level feeling over here. I feel like that could see a part two actually for this, for this guy. <laughs> Let's get Brad yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. I will actually add just one data point that came out of that bay too, where they looked at the universe of companies that they had data on that had a hundred million or higher in annual revenues. Only, well, I think it was 14 or 15% were public companies, rest were private. This speaks to this decade, multiple decade long sort of trend. Your public companies, private companies staying longer. I mean, you had a company like Figma. We'll see what happens with the acquisition. But, you know, Adobe bought this company for $20 billion. And if you look back at when Google went public, when Amazon went public, Amazon went three years after being founded. So much that in the public markets. And now it's really in the private markets, which have expanded in size. Yes. And it's, impo- it's impossible to know and time it, but the private markets have so much capital to support these businesses to a point of profitability. And that takes a long time or a point of massive revenue growth. But look, to get to 100 million in revenue is nearly impossible. I don't know the exact percentage, but the percent of venture-backed companies that get to 100 million in revenue is really, really small. So if you can access the great managers, I mean, that's what it takes, though, in venture to have great returns is being able to access that very small percentage of companies. So, you know, it's about access and leveraging great partners and building relationships so that you can you can get access to very small, small group of businesses out there. But we're excited. We're excited about this time. And, and certainly nothing has changed in terms of innovation, being able to support you know, massive businesses. Well, as you know, we're uh, we're very aligned with that long-term secular. We think it's still early. So, Megan, this has been really, really fun. I'm so happy for you to come on and share your insights and excited to uh, continue the conversation in part two. Samir, thank you so much. It was a blast. It's always a blast to see you. It's uh, If it's ever helpful to spend more time together, you know where I live. I do, I do. <laughs> Which is at my office. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Megan. To learn more about her or Altimeter, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, don't forget to leave a rating and review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.